A symposium was held in 1988 to discuss the probable date of Gautama Buddha's death. The consensus reached was that he died within 20 years either side of 400 BC, although within the Eastern Buddhist tradition of China, Vietnam, Korea, and Japan, the traditional date for the death of the Buddha was 949 BC. The Buddha himself encouraged polyamory, polygyny actually, over monogamy in certain situations. In the Jakarta 200, the Jakartas being stories of the Buddha's former births, a Brahma asked the Buddha for advice regarding four suitors who were courting his four daughters. The Brahman says, One was fine and handsome, one was old and well advanced in years, the third a man of noble birth, and the fourth was good. Even though there be beauty and the like qualities, the Buddha answered, a man is to be despised if he fails in virtue. Therefore, the former is not the measure of a man. Those that I like are the virtuous. After hearing this, the Brahmin gave all of his daughters, all of them, to the virtuous suitor. Fast forwarding either 3,000 or 2,500 years, depending on which of these two dates for the Buddha's death you choose to accept, we find ourselves in 1925. A certain Mr. Calvin Coolidge was the President of the United States, and one day he and Mrs. Coolidge were visiting a government farm. Soon after their arrival, they were taken off on separate tours. When Mrs. Coolidge passed the chicken pens, she paused to ask the man in charge if the rooster copulates more than once a day. Dozens of times, was his reply. Please tell that to the president, Mrs. Coolidge requested. Later, when the president himself passed the same pens and was told about the rooster, he asked, Same hen every time? Oh no, Mr. President, a different one each time. The president nodded slowly, then said, Tell that to Mrs. Coolidge. While well, former exotic dancer and current Ph.D.-holding professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Catherine Frank, contends that group sex was actually depicted in Paleolithic art, Derek McCulloch and David S. Hall, in an article appearing in the Electronic Journal of Human Sexuality, note that, of the 1,270 human societies cataloged in Murdoch's Ethnographic Atlas, about 85% indicate some form of multi-spouse relationships. There is evidence that this form of behavior, as late as the 1940s, was acceptable in 39% of the world's cultures. In the United States, so-called key clubs came into existence. These clubs consisted of an elite group of fighter pilots and their wives during World War II. These men were wealthy enough to move their wives close to the base, and the fact that the fatality rate was the highest of any branch of the service made non-monogamy acceptable. In a key club, when couples arrive at a social party, they drop their keys into a fishbowl. At the end of the evening, the women at the party close their eyes, reach in, and whoever's set of keys she pulls out is the man she goes home with that evening. Such a key mate-swapping party was depicted in an extremely unsympathetic and moralistic manner, I will have to say, in Ang Lee's film, The Ice Storm. Don't have to go out and watch that. Not right away. So, McCulloch and Hall 
observe that polyamorous do not have to individually meet every need of each partner they have. If your wife loves opera and you dislike it, perhaps one of her lovers will enjoy taking her to hear it. If he is a computer whiz and helps fix your computers when they don't behave, you are a very lucky person. Polyamorous say that loving someone does not give you the right to control that person's behavior. These comments bring to mind a line of dialogue from Ingmar Bergman's film Written, The Right, and I quote, You really need four men, one to support you, one to fuck you, one to entertain you, and one to take care of your soul. Or so says Gunnar Bjornstrand to Ingrid Tulin as their acting group is on trial for giving an obscene performance. In a certain way, polyamory, which we'll define for the sake of convenience as an agreement between a couple that each member may have concurrent outside sexual experiences, is like cheating, which we discussed in our last episode, only without the lying, without the secrecy, without the guilt, and at least in theory, without the jealousy. A subset, one might call it, of polyamory is the menage a trois. A menage a trois is a domestic arrangement with three people sharing romantic and or sexual relationships with one another and typically dwelling together. The phrase is a loan from French meaning, quote, household of three, unquote. A form of polyamory, contemporary arrangements are sometimes identified as a thruple, a thruple, or a triad. At the age of 16, in the year of our Lord, 1813, the future author of Frankenstein, Mary Godwin, eloped with her to-be husband, Percy Blythe Shelley, and engaged in a menage with Claire Clermont, future lover of Lord Byron, with whom the Shelleys would later have an extensive relationship. The political philosopher Friedrich Engels lived in a menage a trois with his mistress, Mary Burns, and her sister, Lizzie. Aldous Huxley and his first wife, Maria, engaged in a menage with Mary Hutchinson, a friend of Clive Bell. From 1939, Erwin Schrödinger and his wife, Anne-Maria Bertel, and his mistress, Hilli Mach, had a menage a trois. If you've been following these podcasts religiously, or one might say, paganly, you will recall that Schrödinger introduced the concept of Sitterbewegung to describe the jitter movement or jitter energy which undermines everything, including, but not limited to, our sensuality. Daniel Cardozo, Carla Correa, and Daniele Capella of the Faculty of Social and Human Sciences at Nova University of Lisbon in an article entitled Polyamory as a Possibility of Feminine Empowerment have a few things to say about thruples, thruples, and triads. Two different expressions have been coined, they advise us, meaning the same, HBB, hot by babe, and the unicorn. Both relate to a couple-centric notion where a heterosexual couple finds another woman to live slash have sex with them or to serve as an appendix to the relationship. What we have here is the notion that the male derives pleasure by proxy from a homosexual liaison of his wife and another woman, and this third party, this additional woman, also satisfies him directly. But even that is, although quite a realistic, hypothesis. This completely undermines the sheer possibility of the woman, the one already part of the couple, wanting to explore different possibilities, different sexual possibilities for herself. 
One entertaining cinematic depiction of a menage a trois of sorts occurs in John McNaughton's film Wild Things, in which Nev Campbell, Denise Richards, and Matt Dillon have such an arrangement. And that's all I can say without being lambasted as a spoiler. So you might ask, how prevalent is polyamory? And by the way, we have not yet gotten to swinging the lifestyle and sex parties. Be patient. We'll get there. And as a side question, how many adults harbor a secret desire to be polyamorous? Well, academic researchers Amy C. Moores, Amanda L. Gesselman, and Justin R. Garcia inform us that using two separate U.S. census-based quota samples of single adults in the United States, one out of five people has engaged in consensual non-monogamy, their fancy term for polyamory, at some point in their lifetime. This proportion remained constant across age, education level, income, religion, region, political affiliation, and race, but varied with gender and sexual orientation. Specifically, men compared to women and people who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual compared to those who identify as heterosexual were more likely to report previous engagement and consensual non-monogamy. The same researchers report that one out of six people desire to engage in polyamory. Mm -hmm. Among participants who were not personally interested in polyamory, one out of seven indicated that they respect people who do engage in it. With a considerable percentage of people desiring to try polyamory, the question that arises is, why? Could it be because monogamy, either in dating or in marriage, is not satisfying them in some way? In an article published in the German journal for Psychology, Siegler, Matzik, Rubin, and Conley write, Research shows that there are sexual disadvantages of monogamy, including lower sexual desire and dysfunction. Statistics show that as many as 43% of American women suffer from sexual dysfunction. This diagnosis links long-term monogamous relationships with this medical condition, sexual dysfunction, among women. Recent research has found that women have a greater need than men for novel stimuli in order to maintain sexual arousal. And without the introduction of new stimuli, women's sexual arousal is likely to diminish. In other words, it is probable that women sexually habituate to their male partners in monogamous relationships, thus the notion that monogamous affords women a lifetime of exciting sex seems empirically unfounded. Elizabeth Sheff has written a series of articles in Psychology Today under the heading The Polyamorists Next Door. Given that women habituate to their monogamous partners, it is not surprising that research has found that women and men in polyamorous relationships report high sexual satisfaction. Indeed, women in polyamorous relationships find the sexual diversity to be a particularly beneficial component of their relationships. And furthermore, women cite the opportunity to explore the multifaceted nature of their sexuality including a variety of partners as well as genders, as contributing to their increased sexual satisfaction. In addition to sexual satisfaction, women in polyamorous relationships also experience greater sexual agency. Research shows that polyamorous relationships provide a space for women to exert sexual autonomy without risk of stigmatization. 
Dietrich Klusmann, a psychologist at the University of Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany, has provided a glimpse into the bedrooms of longtime couples. His surveys, involving a total of almost 2,500 subjects, comprise one of the few systematic comparisons of male and female desire at progressive stages of committed relationships. He shows women and men in new relationships reporting, on average, more or less equal lust for each other. But for women who've been with their partners between one and four years, a dive begins and continues leaving male desire, that is the desire of their husbands or boyfriends, far higher. Within this plunge in female desire, there is a notable pattern to wit, over time, women who do not actually live with their partners retain their desire much more than women who do. Interesting. Lesbian couples seem to fare no better, and maybe even worse, in keeping their sexual ardor for each other. The term lesbian bed death, coined by the University of Washington sociologist Pepper Schwartz in the 1980s, has been critiqued as overstatement, but not quite as pure fiction. In the lesbian community, the monogamy problem is being aired more and more. Lisa Diamond, a professor of psychology and gender studies at the University of Utah, explains, For years, gay men have been making open arrangements for sex outside the couple. Now, increasingly, gay women are doing that as well. Morris Eagle, Ph.D., ABPP, Professor Emeritus at the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies, Adelphi University, and the former president of the Division of Psychoanalysis within the American Psychological Association, argues that features of attachment work against erotic desire. According to Eagle, for a romantic partner to serve as an attachment figure, they need to be available, familiar, and predictable. These characteristics, however, thwart feelings of sexual desire, which he argues, conversely, is ignited by novelty and unpredictability. If, in fact, familiarity and predictability are key features of an attachment figure and if sexual desire for a partner is diminished by these characteristics, then once an attachment bond is formed in a relationship, it is likely that sexual desire will decrease. In other words, it is primarily attachment, not sex, that keeps adult partners together for a long period of time, according to Dr. Eagle. There is a good deal of evidence in both animals and humans that diversity and unfamiliarity increase the intensity of sexual interest and that familiarity, propinquity, and availability dampen the intensity of sexual interest and of sexual excitement. They pot it down, so to speak. Another source of the partial antagonism between attachment and sexuality lies in the fact that insofar as one's romantic partner becomes one's attachment figure, the woman takes on a role that is, in important respects, similar to the role played by the mother. This may trigger or intensify the incest taboo, which then makes it more difficult to experience the partner as a sexual object. She becomes too identified with the mother. And this, as much as Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari tried to do a hit job on forms of psychology based on the Oedipus complex, well, here we find it coming back to it again. It rears its ugly or beautiful or maternal head once more. 
the Oedipus complex, the myth, the story of King Oedipus who murdered his father and married his mother. And although Sigmund Freud rejected the idea, there is also an Electra complex in which the woman never gets over her quasi-sexual libidinal investment and cathexis in her father. There is another aspect of these dynamics, however. Women friends of mine have often expressed their frustrations at their boyfriend's lack of commitment. One woman friend even said, Look, Lance and I are living together. And you know what? He's even bought the engagement ring. I found it hidden in the closet. So why doesn't he pop the question? Could it be that even after he's bought the ring, he still hesitates to commit? Like, he's got one foot in and one foot out. How many women say that all the time? He wants one foot in, one foot out. Well, commitment has to do with attachment, which is an entire area of psychology that we will explore in detail in a future episode. What does attachment, however, have to do with polyamory? In a study by Jean-Vierre Pelletier, Frédéric L. Philippe, Serge Lecoeur, and Stéphane Couture, published in the journal Attachment and Human Development, these researchers found that attachment avoidance was positively associated with extradiatic sex, while attachment anxiety was unrelated to it. These findings suggest that attachment avoidance increases people's irritation relative to their partner's desire for engagement, which in turn increases their likelihood to engage in extradiatic sex. Astonishing. If you wish to avoid your partner becoming attached to your partner in that way, one becomes irritated with one's partner, and therefore sexually irritated, I should say, and therefore one says, hey, you know, let's do something else. These researchers also discuss the possibility that individuals characterized by attachment avoidance might use extradiatic sex as a way to distance themselves from their partner. So, if Tom wants to distance himself from Jill, what is he likely to do? Propose that they have an open relationship. Makes sense. In another study published in the Electronic Journal of Human Sexuality, Leanna Wolf, Ph.D., looked at the issue from a somewhat different perspective. In her view of relationships, quote, the attraction phase during which we experience the dopamine intoxication of new love is succeeded by the attachment phase. The attachment phase is supported by different brain chemicals, vasopressin and oxytocin, and it is during this phase that polyamorous people comfortably invite in new attractions and new loves. A shared belief is that the attraction phase, referred to in polyamorous circles as NRE, or new relationship energy, is short-lived, fun, but nothing to personally take very seriously or to feel threatened by in a partner. Mainstream Americans put NRE in a pedestal and thus consider polyamory to be supremely foolhardy. Noted social psychologist and marketing consultant Dr. Claire Rapai has noted that American society's attitude toward romantic love are very adolescent. As lovers, he says, Americans behave like teenagers. We take our crushes seriously, and we measure our self-worth by being able to demand the fidelity of our partners and the health of our relationships by the intensity of passion we're able to co-generate. For open couples, Dr. Leanna Wolf opines, 
Perhaps the biggest plus is the excitement of a new love in tandem with the security of a stable home life with one's committed primary partner. Again, makes sense. In her book, Dilemmas of Desire, teenage girls talk about sexuality. Developmental psychology and co-founder of the organization SPARK, which means sexualization protest, action resistance knowledge. Deborah L. Tolman defined the term sexual subjectivity, by which she meant a person's experience of herself as a sexual being who feels entitled to pleasure and sexual safety, who makes active sexual choices, and who has an identity as a sexual being. Sexual desire is at the very heart of sexual subjectivity. Psychologist Elizabeth Sheff of Georgia State University expands this concept of sexual subjectivity by saying, sexual subjectivity is integrally linked with power. The power to appropriate sexuality, relational power, and social power connected to defining versions of sexuality outside of rigidly controlled norms. Women with no access to their own sexual subjectivity have bodies which Deborah Tolman has termed silent, disempowered by being spoken for and defined by masculine ideas and desires. Interesting. Reminds me of an old song by one of my favorite artists, Tori Amos, Silent All These Years. Women's bodies as being silent due to, in effect, the misogyny of mainstream culture. Elizabeth Sheff was a participatory observer in her study of polyamorous women. She reported that many polyamorous women became polyamorous as a result of their reevaluation of traditional gender roles, which, among other things, constricted their expression of their sexuality. Polyamory for them was a way of satisfying their high sexual appetites. Thus far, we have discussed some of the reasons why couples might wish to extend their relationships through polyamory. Now let's look at what some psychologists see as the benefits of polyamory. While a graduate student at Regis University, Elaine Cook, herself a member of a polyamorous couple and a member of a polyamorous social group, undertook a study of seven other polyamorous couples. Members of these couples cite as benefits of polyamory the following. One, personal growth. Two, truth and honesty. Previous to becoming polyamorous, some individuals needed to cheat in order to become sexually satisfied. Once they become polyamorous, they no longer need to cheat. Three, in polyamory, some of the participants found a greater connection with others and a community that was supportive. They felt that they had more love in their lives than they would have had otherwise. 4. Fun, sensuality, and sexuality. The participants enjoy the ability to experience a greater variety in their sexuality. Some felt that they learned more about sex by experiencing different people. They learned more about their own sexual responses, as well as how to be a better lover. One woman specifically mentioned finding that some sexual positions worked well with one person and not another. Having sex with a lover who had a small penis allowed her to see that intercourse did not have to be painful. 5. Improving the primary relationship. A number of people observed that polyamory had improved their primary relationship. One of the ways this happened 
was that some people felt an extra sexual juiciness. Some of this was from the new relationship energy brought by their outside relationship or relationships. One woman said she had more and better sex when she had an outside relationship. And finally, number six, choice. Polyamory gives people more choice. For two of the women in the author's study, it gave them an opportunity to explore serious emotional and sexual relationships with women as well as with men. For some people, it gave them more freedom to explore sexually, just generally. They could partake in activities, whether sexual or non-sexual, that their primary partners were not interested in with their lovers. The thing about, hey, I love opera, you know, and uh, you don't, that kind of deal. Find someone who does. Sleep with them. Doesn't matter. Everyone's happy. The author concluded that polyamorous relationships were successful because they felt greater appreciation of and closeness with their primary partners. And they felt that they had better communication with their primary partners. She quotes an author who states that spending time alone with someone, holding hands, and of course flirting, touching, or smiling too much, all of these are signals of a possible sexual relationship in our culture, and this is what makes them socially dangerous. If you're polyamorous, you can do all of these things. You can flirt and kiss and touch with someone outside of your primary relationship other than your relational partner, and it's okay. It's even smiled upon. One of the participants in that study commented that in her experience, polyamorous people were more open to sensuality and touch, which harkens back to the overarching theme of this podcast series, the exploration of ecstatic sensuality. Surveys confirm that 97.5% of people participating in polyamorous relationships feel that their life has improved overall because of it. Only 12.5% of people in these relationships report feeling anxious and stressed because of their polyamory. This per an article by Paige Harper, published in the Quindessum. Through research via self-report, Alicia N. Rubel and Anthony F. Bogart reported in the Journal of Sex Research that, quote, it has not been consistently found that consensual non-monogamists would have poorer psychological well-being while engaging in consensual non-monogamy. In fact, some data suggests that people participating in non-monogamous relationships may actually have an opportunity for more self-awareness and peace with their sexual needs than those in monogamous relationships. Peace with one's sexual needs. Great expression. Great expression. According to a study by Jefferson L. Piamonte and Jennifer Rubin, published in the Journal of Personal and Social Relationships, it is generally believed that monogamous individuals have better sex life than those who are consensually non-monogamous. Well, in their research, they compared the sexual satisfaction of consensually non-monogamous and monogamous individuals and also considered the relationship satisfaction of participants utilizing a non-targeted sample of consensually non-monogamous participants. They found that monogamous people reported slightly lower sexual satisfaction and lower orgasm rates than those who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships. Moreover, the type of consensually non-monogamous relationship in which a person engages is important. 
Swingers consistently reported higher sexual satisfaction than monogamous individuals, whereas those in open relationships had equivalent levels of satisfaction to those in monogamous relationships. Well, in this particular study, relationship satisfaction did not differ between consensually non-monogamous and monogamous groups. That having been said, the findings of this research did not support the old-fashioned perception that people in monogamous relationships have better sex than consensually non-monogamous individuals do. In another article published in the Journal of Personal and Social Psychology, authors Amy C. Murs and Robin Edelstein tell us that in qualitative studies, the majority of individuals engaged in consensual non-monogamy reported that their marriage improved and that they felt increased warmth, closeness, and love toward their primary partner as a result of their consensually non-monogamous lifestyle. Moreover, individuals engaged in consensual non-monogamy reported less jealousy than those not engaged in consensual non-monogamy and often described feeling positive about their partner's relationships with others. This observation is expanded upon by Stephanie Pappas in an article published in the Scientific American, from which I shall now quote. If you ask most people how they'd feel if their partner had sex with or fell in love with someone else, the responses would be pretty negative. Fear, anger, jealousy, rejection. Ask a polyamorous person the same question, and they're more likely to tell you that they'd be thrilled. It's a concept called compersion, which means the joy felt when a partner discovers love outside of you. It's similar to the feeling the typical person might get after finding out that their best friend scored her dream job, Jarna Holmes, a psychologist at Champlain University in Vermont, said. But in this case, the happiness stems from a lover's external relationship. That finding challenges much of what traditional psychological research has established about how jealousy works. It turns out that, hey, people are not reacting with jealousy when their partner is flirting with someone else, Vern Harm said. Good science tests theories and predictions. You need to see if it holds up even in extreme situations. In another example where polyamorous people potentially turn typical psychological reactions upside down, Holmes conducted a preliminary analysis of about 200 polyamorous people, asking them about feelings of jealousy. Typically, he said, you'd expect to see that women are more anxious about emotional infidelity while men worry more about sexual infidelity. This was not the case among the polyamorous individuals studied by Holmes. In fact, there was no gender differences in rates of sexual or emotional jealousy to be found. Next, we turn to the question of the overall mental health of individuals involved in different types of relationships. Well, like so many other things, this has actually been studied. Jordi Korobach of the University Pompro Fabra in Barcelona and his colleagues argue that emodiversity, that is, the variety and relative abundance of the emotions that human experience is an independent predictor of mental and physical health, such as decreased depression and doctor's visits. They further claim that experiencing many different specific emotional states, for example, anger, shame, and sadness, can have more adaptive value than experiencing fewer or more global, generalized states, such as, oh, I'm feeling bad, you know, that sort of thing. 
Since the diversity of these specific emotions provides richer information about our environment, the individual is more able to deal with a given affective situation. Moreover, reporting a wide variety of emotions might also be a sign of self-aware and authentic life. Such emotional self-awareness and authenticity are linked to health and well-being. In an article published in the Journal of the Theory of Social Behavior, Aaron Benziev of the University of Haifa and Luke Bruning of Oxford University expand on the theme of emotional diversity. They do so as follows. In addition to emotional diversity expressed in greater shades of emotions, we can discern two related diversities, different diversities, sensory diversity and affective diversity. Sensory diversity refers to a greater diversity in one's awareness of sensory contents, such as smell, sight, or taste. Affective diversity, on the other hand, refers to greater diversity of general affective states, such as listening to different types of music, enjoying walking in the city or walking in nature, enjoying reading or dancing, varieties of things. An increase up to a point in complexity of these different aspects of diversity typically enhances our flourishing as it is based upon a broader range of satisfaction and thus has a more solid foundation that is more likely to endure over time. This reminds me of uh, another theme that we keep going back to, the repetition compulsion that Freud eschewed so violently. We have a compulsion to repeat, compulsion to repeat. Emo diversity is the key. Wide range of shades of emotion. Affective diversity is the key. Self-awareness, awareness of the environment. Sensory diversity, affective. All of these are ways to lead a fuller, more ecstatically sensual life. So, this harkens back to a fundamental theme of this podcast series, that as a result of millennia of evolution, human brains are now structured so as to tune out sensory inputs, which could not only increase pleasure, but also increase our sensuality and capacity for intimacy as well. So here we are delighted to find two authors, highly prestigious academic authors at that, who are saying that the same is the case for emotional inputs. Back specifically to polyamorous relationships, Benziev and Bruning suggest that contrary to monogamous romantic ideology, polyamorous discourse is clear that ambivalence and conflicts will inevitably arise in relationships, but they are survivable. They don't need to lead to manic blow-ups, even violence. This clarity helps diffuse meta-anxieties that arise when people prohibit themselves from feeling conflicted about their relationships and their partners. Anxieties which transform clashing feelings into something deeply painful. Polyamorous relationships also appear to halt dyadic withdrawal where couples become distant from other people, thereby providing individuals with a greater range of interpersonal connections and broader social networks than they would otherwise experience. Take a moment to think about people you've known who have gotten married, often to people who are not a part of their specific social circle but otherwise, and then you don't see them anymore. They go off into this dyadic withdrawal. It happens all the time, and it's sad. Polyamorous relationships have another advantage. 
they're well suited to accommodate individual intrapsychic discoveries over time. For example, sexual desire, particularly for women, is both flexible and responsive to situational cues. If this is correct, then we see there is an extra dimension to the way polyamorous relationships facilitate emotional intensity. Although in its infancy, the research on non-monogamous relationships like polyamory strongly suggests that such relationships are active sites of emotional profundity. Xiao Zhongchang of Western University looked into the question of how being polyamorous, how having one or more outside relationships in a mutually agreed context, affects various aspects of the participants' primary relationships. She notes that previous research had found higher intimacy, commitment, and investment in primary relationships, while greater sexual frequency and satisfaction in secondary relationships. Well, the purpose of her study was to investigate specifically the differences in feelings of love and jealousy towards primary partners compared to secondary partners. 226 self-identified polyamorous who were above the age of majority had at least two partners, one as primary and another as secondary, were included in her study. Participants completed a survey which included a romantic attraction scale, a passionate love scale, a companionate love scale, and a modified jealousy scale testing for emotional and sexual jealousy. Participants were recruited through online polyamorous groups and social media, consistent with the hypothesis. Results showed higher companionate love in emotional jealousy for primary partners than secondary partners. However, Results for passionate love and romantic attractions were contrary to predictions, both resulting higher for primary partners than for secondary partners. So wait a minute. Being polyamorous is likely to increase both your love for and your attraction to your primary partner. Wow. Yet one more reason for one to explore polyamory, or at least so it seems to me. A question asked by Dr. Richard J. Jenks, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Indiana University Southwest, was, How happy in life are polyamorous people? Good question. Well, in a recent study of over 4,000 subscribers to the Loving More website, the authors asked their polyamorous sample about how happy they were. Respondents could answer along a one-to-four scale, with one being not too happy, two being not sure, three being pretty happy, and four being very happy. Their average score was slightly over three. This score happened to be higher than the score for the comparison sample, which consisted of respondents to the General Social Sciences Survey. When asked if their life was close to ideal, agree or disagree, the general population had the smallest percentage in the agree categories and also the highest percentage in the disagree categories. So they weren't that satisfied, weren't that happy. The swingers and the polyamorous were around 10 percentage points higher than the general population in responding that life was close to ideal, 67% versus 57%, and 10% lower in saying that they disagreed that their lives were close to ideal. Dr. Jenks' conclusion? 
There seems to be no reason to conclude that either Polly's or Swingers are deeply disturbed or unhappy people and that they are simply lying about their happiness and life satisfaction in order to deceive themselves and our others. In other words, gosh, they're really happy. Two things that most people are looking for in relationships are nurturance and eroticism. It just so happens that these are both themes of this podcast series. Nurturance, for me, means more than simply care, compassion, tenderness, and verbal or even physical expressions of love. Nurturance is encouragement, validation, and support for one's lover's secret, or not-so-secret, passions, for her or his goals and objectives, for her or his growth and ongoing transformation. Change, transformation, growth. That's what life's all about. But back to what the authorities have to say on the subject. In their book, A New Look at Love, Elaine Hatfield of the University of Hawaii and G. William Waltzer of the University of Minnesota conceptualize love as either passionate or compassionate. Importantly, romantic partners may provide both erotic and nurturing experiences, though these may emerge more strongly in different phases of a relationship. Unlike individuals in monogamous relationships, those in polyamorous relationships can pursue multiple romantic relationships simultaneously, potentially allowing them to experience higher levels of eroticism and nurturance. In an article published in the journal Social Psychology, Rhonda N. Barzani of York University in Toronto and her colleagues studied this very issue. Among their research population, they found, as expected, that polyamorous participants experienced less eroticism but more nurturance in their relationship with their primary partners compared to secondary partners. Furthermore, people in polyamorous relationships reported more nurturance with primary partners and eroticism with secondary partners compared to people in monogamous relationships. These findings suggest that polyamory may provide a unique opportunity for individuals to experience both eroticism and nurturance simultaneously. This harkens back to the line from the Igmar Bergman movie, to wit, that some, perhaps all of us, need more than one person to take care of our needs. Many of you listening to this episode are probably asking how polyamory works in the real world. In her book, Marriage Confidential, Love in the Post-Romantic Age, Pamela Hogg wrote, Marital non-monogamy may be to the 21st century what premarital sex was to the 20th, a behavior that shifts gradually from prescribed and limited to tolerated and common. This path is connected to the so-called free passes some self-identified monogamous individuals give to their partners when traveling or when their partner's lovers live in different city or country. In her study of modern heterosexual marriages, she wrote about the 50-mile rule according to which both men and women allow their partners to have lovers when outside a negotiated radius from home, 49.5, 69.73, whatever. Some people who work in the motion picture industry have the expression locations don't count, LDC, meaning that if you are away on a shoot a long distance away and for a lengthy stretch of time, it is perfectly permissible to sleep with other people. Okay. As Catherine Frank and John de la Mate 
indicated in their chapter of the book, Understanding Non-Monogamies, this type of arrangement fits well with the professional conditions of the increasing number of people who frequently travel for conferences, workshops, retreats, or business meetings. Then there's the issue of fidelity and the primary relationship. To ask the question bluntly, are polyamorous individuals, whether swappers or swingers or any flavor of either of these, more or less likely to cheat, to do something sexually that is not permitted, if you will, within the context of the negotiated polyamory? In an article published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, Magnus Enquist, Risa H. Rosenberg, and Hans Tehmann, Department of Zoology, Stockholm University, report as follows. Recent studies of socially monogamous species have shown that in many cases, females do not copulate exclusively with their pair mates, but are also receptive to other males. The explanation usually given for unfaithful female behavior in this context is that most females are unable to bond with a male they would prefer as genetic father to their offspring. To secure male assistance, the female therefore pairs with an available male, but also copulates with males of supposedly higher genetic quality. Interesting. However, Enquist et al., offer an alternative evolutionary explanation for female infidelity, which does not rely upon this good genes hypothesis of female choice. They show, with a simple model, that in an evolutionary game between three players, a male, a female, and a male lover, solutions exist in which the female can secure more assistance from her mate by being receptive to other males. If a female is interested in, by which we mean receptive to, other males and thereby attracts them, her pair mate may decide not to stray. Many cases of monogamy are looked upon today as a reproductive coalition, social monogamy, in which males and females tend their common offspring rather than as sexual monogamy. Another matter we discuss regularly in this podcast is the relationship between love, including physical erotic and sensual love, and spirituality. In an article published in 2019 in the International Journal of Transpersonal Studies, Seth Pardo of the San Francisco Department of Public Health and Akila E.A. Kistler examined the spiritual identities of people who self-identify as consensually and openly partnered with more than one person, as well as if and how those identities changed since childhood. Those identities, spiritual identities, religious identities. Moreover, to deepen previous transpersonal relationships which investigated how non-monogamous paradigms of loving contribute to spiritual development, their study also examined between-group differences of whether non-monogamous sexual behavior and spirituality are emotionally linked. Their data suggested specifically that pagan spiritualities may provide more supportive philosophical and spiritual frameworks that normalize and validate non-monogamous behavior, non-heterosexual interests, sexual desire, and the sacredness of sexuality. If sexuality is indeed sacred, and depending on your definition of sacred, that is an identification which this podcast supports, then expanding it to extend to others outside of a monogamous dyadic relationship brings more sacredness, more godliness, 
into one's life. Jorge N. Ferrer of California Institute of Integrated Studies in San Francisco has, in fact, written about polyamory as a path toward emotional and spiritual growth. In an article which may be found in the International Journal of Transpersonal Studies, Advanced Publication Archive, he asked a probing question. Can jealousy be transformed into sympathetic joy? In Buddhism, sympathetic joy, mudita, is regarded as one of the four immeasurable states, brahma-visharas, or qualities of an enlightened person. The other three being loving-kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, and equanimity, upashka. In Buddhism, sympathetic joy is regarded as one of the four immeasurable states, or qualities of an enlightened person, the other three being loving-kindness, compassion, and equanimity. Sympathetic joy refers to the human capability to participate in the joy of others, to feel happy when others feel happy. Has not the transformation of jealousy into sympathetic joy been described in the tantric literature, he asks? Well, yes and no. In Vajrayana Buddhism, jealousy is considered an imperfection associated with attachment and self-centeredness that is transmuted into sympathetic joy, equanimity, and wisdom by the power of the Lord of Karma, one of the five Dayani Buddhas, which is to say, Buddhas visualized in meditation. In Vajrayana Buddhism, jealousy is considered as an imperfection, klesha, associated with attachment and self-centeredness that is transmuted into sympathetic joy, equanimity, and wisdom by the power of the Lord of Karma, Amogasiddhi, one of the five Dhyani Buddhas, which is to say Buddhas visualized in meditation. From the green body of Amogasiddhi emanates his consort, the goddess Green Tara, who is said to also have the power of turning jealousy into the ability to dwell in the happiness of others. Well, at first sight, it may look as if the green gods and goddesses of the Buddhist pantheon had defeated the green-eyed monster of jealousy. Upon closer inspection, however, it becomes apparent that this perception needs correction or modification. The problem is that the Buddhist terms translated as jealousy, such as Isa in Pali, Frog Dog in Tibetan, or Ishaya in Sanskrit, are more accurately read as envy. In the various Buddhist descriptions of jealousy, one generally finds illustrations of bitterness and resentment at the happiness, talents, or good fortune of others, but very rarely, if ever, of contracting fear and anger in response to a mate's sexual or emotional connection to others. As Shogran Trumpa wrote in his book, Orderly Chaos, The Mandela Principle, it is not exactly jealousy. We do not seem to have the proper term for it in the English language. It is a paranoid attitude of comparison rather than purely jealousy. In other words, it's more like a sense of competition. One thing we all have to look forward to is going old. Well, growing older and becoming, as they'd say, 55 plus. That prospect may be a long way off for you. It certainly is for me but it is never too early to think about it. What do old folks do for intimacy, for pleasure, for sex? For some of us, 
To visualize senior citizens having sex is, well, shall we say, not the optimal aesthetic experience. James R. Fleckenstein and Daryl W. Cox II of the Department of Anthropology at University of Oklahoma report the following. Research shows that increased sexual activity is strongly associated with better health outcomes and greater personal happiness. This is true for all of us. For all of us. Okay. Increased sexual activity is strongly associated with better health outcomes and greater personal happiness. Remember that, all my listeners to this podcast. This is also true, maybe especially true, among older adults, and especially men, where declining sexual frequency has been shown to be correlated with negative health, increased risk of cardiovascular problems, higher risks of depression, and diminished general happiness. Recent research indicates that among older adults, married individuals are not necessarily getting more sex and are not being more sexually satisfied than single individuals. Huh? If you're married, that doesn't help so much. Well, Lars Tornstrom proposed a final stage of human psychological and moral development, which he called gerotranscendence, which he defines as a state of development where individuals transcend rigid sociocultural perspectives about the self, about others, about material things, and fundamental existential questions. Experiencing gerotranscendence results in a meta-perspective that is reflective, cosmic, transcendent, and typically more personally satisfying. Sexual and erotic gyrotranscendence is not about a last man ditch to add notches on the bedpost, nor attempts to slake long-suppressed sexual lusts. It is a quest for optimal transcendent sexuality. A surprising finding among the older adults in long-term relationships from Petty J. Kleinplatz's study was that over half reported being consensually non-monogamous, and some reported that the onset of their optimal sexual experiences emerged with the opening of their relationship. Optimal sexual experience was described by the participants as consisting of authenticity, intense emotional connection, being present, deep sexual and erotic intimacy, extraordinary communication, vulnerability, interpersonal risk-taking and exploration, and finally, transcendence. Optimal sexual experience is very similar to what Dr. David Schnark, in his book, Resurrecting Sex, Solving Sexual Problems and Rejuvenating Your Relationship, has called wall socket sex a phenomenon experienced by couples during profoundly intense, fully present, differentiation-enabled intimacy and erotic interaction that taps into a never-before-experienced erotic energy. Plug in 120 volts, 220,000, thousand volts of erotic energy. Fleckenheim and Cox themselves collected 502 responses via an online survey from individuals aged 55 and older residing in the United States who engage in consensually non-monogamous sexual relationships. Self-reported health and happiness, number of sexual partners, and sexual frequency are compared with 723 similar responses from the nationally representative 2012 United States General Social Survey conducted by NORC 
NORC at the University of Chicago. Results. Irrespective of formal relationship status, the non-exclusive sample, in other words, the polyamorous, reported significantly more sexual partners, more sexual frequency, better health, and were much more likely to have had an HIV test than the general population. The non-exclusive sample, the polyamorous, also reported being significantly happier than the general population with the exception of married men who reported being as happy as the general population. So, in this study, polyamory made women happier than it made men. Whoa! Okay, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, as with everything else, over every ray of sunshine a cloud must eventually pass. Such a cloud is provided by Giulio Perotta, strategic psychotherapist and forensic criminologist, as well as a jurist in Rome. His data, at least as reported by him and analyzed by him, show what he refers to as the total psychopathological predisposition of subjects who consciously and intentionally undertake a polygamous style of couple relationships confirming the prevalence of borderline and narcissistic disorders up to the marked presence of psychotic dysfunctional traits in subjects who prefer the sentimental anarchic type of troilist relationships. Boy, he really lays it on. The main causes that push the subject to undertake the troilist path, the polyamorous path, are mainly traumatic relational experiences of a familial and affective sentimental kind, betrayal. Therefore, the emotional tension and anxiety deriving from the fear of reliving negative experiences is attenuated by the Troilist style of relationship that allows greater control of the couple's relationship and internal dynamics, favoring a marked narcissistic control that generates, aggravates, and self-feeds the dysfunctional trait found. In fact, the emotional experiences lived during the Troilist, polygamous or polyamorous conduct act as positive reinforcement for the maintenance and strengthening of the subject's belief. Starting with the concept cuckold and having placed the substantial differences with the Troilism, despite the terminological error committed by all the other researchers who consider these two terms synonymous, he goes on and on, he proceeded to analyze the clinical neurobiological and relational profiles to then investigate the borderline forms of Troilism, open couples, polygamy, and polyamory. By analyzing the possible etiological causes, which are the basis of these manifestations, he concluded that probably the multifactorial is the most suitable answer with a clear orientation for the psychological causes deriving from a post-traumatic stress adaptation, substantially in the field of paraphilias or narcissism with adaptive forms, therefore self-destructive. Ooh, okay. So, like I say, over every ray of sunshine, a cloud must pass. So, um, let's explore other things about polyamory after a break.
swingers. When I think about swingers, what springs to mind are events and contexts in which people have sex publicly, and many of the individuals with whom they have such public sex are not persons with whom they are in relationships, or even know outside of the context of the swinging experience, or perhaps the swinging community of which they are members. There are also swinging contexts and events where sex is less of a performance. Groups of people float off into more private situations. However, this does not diminish the visual enjoyment of watching and touching and caressing new people, or the thrill of doing this. And apparently there are a lot of them. About four million people are swingers, according to estimates by the Kinsey Institute and other researchers. Swingers have become a multi-million dollar travel industry. So be careful when you pick a family vacation spot. Watch out for the code words like clothing optional, adult fun, and couples only. I go for the ones that say no television. Those That would be a good... Uh, a good swinging site for me, I think, or a good vacation site in general. Hundreds of resorts now cater to the lifestyle, as it's known. There are also swingers' conventions that take over entire resorts. Inside, thousands of couples play out their sexual fantasies and find new things and positions and people to fantasize about. And they keep those fantasies with them year-round, and it spices up their lives. It's a worldwide phenomenon, according to award-winning journalist Terry Gould. When Gould was assigned to write a news story about swinging, he assumed it would all be about sleaze. He was surprised when he went to an elegant club. I met bankers and lawyers, and I started talking to these people, he said. Gould then spent three years researching the lifestyle and the people who swing. Most of them don't drink, and most of them don't use drugs. They believe in raising children in clean-cut, stable environments. They match our paradigm of the sunny suburbanite, he said. If I may be permitted an aside, there are lifestyle retreats at which the finest wines are served, a magnum of Domaine Loire, Les Vigurons, Louis Saint-Georges, Premier Cru, would be no stranger at top-level lifestyle events and if this isn't an inducement for you, then I have no idea what would be. Pretty good salesman. In his book, The Lifestyle, A Look at the Erotic Rights of Swingers, Gould concluded that couples swing in order not to cheat on their partners. They see it as consensual, co-marital sex, and something that they're doing in order to spice up their own relationships. They're not going to a swing club to have sex with other people, they're going there to get hot for each other, Gould said. From what people have told me, my response to this is yes and no. Couples do visit swinging clubs and resorts to have sex with other people, with the ultimate joy, the ultimate result, being that they can get hot for each other. They bring the juiciness back home. Some would think that men might pressure their wives into swapping, or specifically in this case, into swinging, but the women say they're the ones who are in charge. The women are the ones that make this happen, said one female swinger. We have the veto right, another said. So if we are not attracted to the other couple, it's not going to happen. 
It's usually men who bring women into the lifestyle, but it's the women that keep them in the lifestyle, opined a male swinger. Well, we'll look into that matter a little bit more later. The women say that they find the sexual freedom liberating. It definitely changes women, and it makes women feel more confident that they're the ones in charge, a female swinger commented. The women say they find the sexual freedom at swinging events and of being swingers liberating. It definitely changes women, and it makes women feel more confident that they're the ones in charge, a female swinger commented. The couples set up certain rules beforehand. Some couples don't do anything without the other. Some couples don't kiss others, which I find fascinating. In a certain way, I get it. A kiss, meaning a full-fledged kiss on the lips with tongue involvement, is almost invariably a loving, romantic gesture. I say this as someone who adores kissing, with its innumerable nuances, moods, rhythms, and styles. And eye contact with the person you are kissing is magical. You are falling into the depths of her sensuality and the depths of her capacity to love, and she into yours. A grope, on the other hand, is a sexual gesture more than seldom of a controlling, manipulative sort. At its best, a grope is a mutual turn-on for both parties, or for a throuple or a thruple or a triad, if that happens to be the context. At its worst, a grope is just a grope. Individuals of our grandparents' generation will remember the song that Dooley Wilson sang and played in the ancient movie Casablanca. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. In my experience, a kiss is almost never just a kiss. It's so much more. So much. Whereas many times, maybe even most times, a grope is just a grope. Ask any number of politicians and entertainment industry personalities who do this sort of thing all the time, and now, finally, thanks to the Me Too movement, many of them are being forced to pay the price for it. Such a grope is worse than an aggressive act. It is an assault of the most heinous kind. In 2005, John Stossel produced an investigative news report into the swinging lifestyle. When Stossel asks swinging couples whether they worry that their spouses will, quote, find they like someone else better, one male replied, people in the swinging community swing for a reason. They don't swing to go out and find a new wife. A woman asserted it makes women feel more confident that they are the ones in charge. Stossel interviewed 12 marriage counselors. According to him, not one of them said, don't do it though some said getting sexual thrills outside of marriage can threaten a marriage. Swingers whom Stossel interviewed said their marriages are stronger because they don't have affairs and they don't lie to each other. So in this way, swinging is similar to other forms of polyamory that we discussed earlier. Polyamory, swinging, all of these things are preferable to cheating. Yay or nay, ask yourselves that. Yeah, or nay. Swinging can take place in a number of different contexts, ranging from spontaneous sexual activity 
involving partner swapping or adding a third or more participants in an informal gathering of friends to plan regular social meetings to hooking up with like-minded people at a sex club, also known as a swinger club or a lifestyle club. Different clubs offer varied facilities and atmospheres and also often hold theme nights. I'm looking forward to swingers clubs and lifestyle clubs offering explore ecstatic sensuality nights. Make a deal with you if you want to do that. Swinging is also known to take place in semi-public venues such as hotels, resorts, and cruise ships are often in private homes. Furthermore, Many websites that cater to swinging couples now exist, some boasting hundreds of thousands of members. A question that everyone listening to this podcast is surely asking is, who are the swingers? For a partial answer to this, we turn again to Richard J. Jenks, Professor Emeritus of Sociology, Indiana University, Southeast. In his study of attendees at a national swingers convention, he reported the mean age to be 39, In 2010, researchers Berkstrand and Sinsky reported a mean age for swingers of 39.1. In his 2009 study of 1,376 swingers, Fernandez found that 29% of the males were between 36 and 45, while another 33% were between the ages of 46 and 55. The figures for the females were 42% and 22% respectively. Interesting. Social class variables have also been studied. Studies by Gilmartin, Jenks, and Levitt all found that swingers were above average in education. In 2009, Fernandez found his swinger respondents were, on the average, college-educated and had incomes between $70,000 and $200,000. He doesn't state whether these are household incomes or individual incomes. Hmm, whatever. These studies definitely point to a lifestyle engaged in by those who are middle and upper middle class. Another interesting question relates to which gender is looked upon more favorably if they initiate polyamory or group sex, swinging, activities in their relationship, women or men. Psychologists Ashley E. Thompson, Jocelyn Hart, Stara Stefaniak, and Carissa Harvey structured their research to ask this very question. Using a between-subject experimental paradigm, 793 heterosexual U.S. adults, 338 men, 455 women, read one of eight vignettes depicting an individual initiating one of five behaviors with their romantic partner. Those behaviors being polyamory, okay, swinging, open relationships, group sex, and role-playing and subsequently judge the initiator using three judgments of interest, cognitive abilities, morality, and relationship satisfaction. The results indicated that women initiators were judged more favorably than were men initiators, and that role-playing initiators were judged more favorably than were initiators of consensually non-monogamous behaviors. Among consensually non-monogamous behaviors, those initiating swinging and group sex were judged more favorably than were those initiating polyamory and open relationships. Could it be that swinging and group sex are viewed as less threatening to relationships than mate swapping or even open relationships? 
Perhaps this is because swinging, in a certain way, is a quasi-public activity. Jerry and Sue are a couple who attend a swingers' party, and Jerry sees Sue making it with another guy. Let's call him Chris. Well, this is not seen as a threat to Jerry and Sue's marriage or relationship because Jerry knows that it's a one-off and that there is no emotional connection between Sue and Chris. Except, we may observe, great sex can be very powerful and can engender an emotional bond very quickly. It's hard to get a great orgasm out of your mind, either for the persons who experience it or for the individual, in this case Jerry, who watches them, in this case Sue and Chris, experience it. Which brings us to the question of jealousy, as experienced by swingers, and especially by couples who swing. In an article published in 2017 in the journal Psychology and Sexuality, Justin Wilt, Marissa A. Harrison, and Kobe S. Michael, all of Penn State Harrisburg, define swinging as emotionally committed romantic partners engaging in sex with others, typically in the presence of one's partner. Previous studies of the demographics, attitudes, and behaviors of those involved in swinging are largely from the 1970s and tended to focus on obtaining information from only one member of a romantic pair engaged in swinging. In their present exploratory descriptive study of swingers, these psychologists endeavored to obtain a contemporary sample to document demographics, to elucidate gender similarities and differences with respect to motivations and attitudes towards swinging, and to gauge self versus partner perceptions of the shared activity, that activity being swinging. They administered a questionnaire to 34 heterosexual couples attending a swinging club. Demographics match those found in previous studies of swingers. As expected, participants engaged in swinging for enjoyment and fantasy fulfillment and reported low jealousy from themselves and their partners. Results show few gender differences in attitudes towards swinging and consistent partner agreement of the motivations and parameters of participating in swinging. However, participants' assessments of why their partners engaged in swinging were not consistent with their partners' reports. Interesting. More communication and sharing would be called for, it seems to me. Fascinating. In an article published in the British Journal of Social Psychology, Richard de Visser and Dee McDonald also addressed the issue of jealousy among swingers. Their qualitative study examined the management of jealousy among four active heterosexual swinging couples living in southern England. Participants highlighted the importance of discussion and negotiation, communication, a shared couple identity, and shared rules and boundaries that allowed them to manage jealousy so that they could better enjoy swinging. Rather than seeking to eliminate jealousy, swingers may manage their feelings of jealousy in order to increase sexual excitement and arousal. This makes perfectly good sense. Jealousy in this context can be like, I don't know, wasabi with one sushi. Or better, it increases the pulse rate, empowers one's own sexuality and sexual desire excites one's sensuality. It's a thrill. A thrill that is perhaps distantly akin to surrender, but with the underlying confidence that your partner, your boyfriend or girlfriend, is always going to be yours. Hmm.
Those who function in accordance with conventional norms and boundaries of monogamy, as if one could refer to anything as conventional anymore, may assume that the attitudes and values of swingers must be entirely different from their own. They may assume that swingers do not subscribe to conventional religions, for example, or that swingers may have entirely different ideas about what constitutes the good life. Curtis R. Benjamin, Ph.D., and Jennifer Blevinsinski of Bellarmine University in Louisville conducted a study of 1,100 swingers. Their survey was approved by the North American Swing Club Association, NASCA. The age range was from 22 to 82, with the mean age of 39.1, the median age 28, and the standard deviation 9.6. The results were compared with a parallel study of the general population, once again the General Social Survey, or NORC, conducted by the University of Chicago since 1972. Here is what their survey found. 72% of swingers were members of a church, synagogue, or mosque compared to 61% of the general population. Is this what the conventional person would expect? Most likely not. 63% were Protestant and 25% were Catholic. The swingers' values were in the following order. 1. Self-respect. 2. Family security. 3. Inner harmony. 4. Happiness. 5. Mature love. 6. True friendship. 7. Pleasure. 8. Freedom. 9. A sense of accomplishment. 10. To have an exciting life. 11. To have a comfortable life. 12. Wisdom. 13. World peace. 14. Social recognition. 15. Equality. 16. To live in a world of beauty. And 17. National security. Followed finally by 18. Salvation. Over 23% of the general sample, that is the NORC sample, believe that the law should forbid marriages between blacks and whites. And 9% of swingers held that belief. Boy, this stuff. Anyway. On whether human nature is basically good or evil, 52% of swingers believe that human nature is basically good, while 8% believe that it is basically evil. By contrast, 41% of the general population believe that human nature is generally good, and 17% believe that it is evil. Hmm. So, wait a minute. Let's look at this again. 17% of the general population believe that human nature is evil, whereas only 8% of swingers hold that belief. Fascinating. So we're looking at a situation here where the swingers tend largely to be optimistic and they value things like home life and stability and all those things very highly. Fascinating. As for which member of a couple initiated swinging, 81% of men says it was themselves as opposed to 43% of women. When asked, is life exciting or dull? Interesting question. 76% of swingers said that it was exciting, while 24% said that it was pretty dull or routine. Contrast this with response from the general population in the NORC survey, 
wherein 46% describe their lives as exciting and 55% describe their lives as routine or dull. Hmm. Swingers were asked if swinging had strengthened their marriage. 50% of men and 54% of women responded that this was true or mostly true, and around 25% of both genders said that it was somewhat true. 60% of both men and women said that their marriages were happier after they became swingers, while only 1% of men and 3% of women said their marriages were less happy after they became swingers. This should be taken in the context that 50% of men and 56% of women rated their marriages as very happy before they entered the swinging lifestyle. But there was nevertheless an increase. And it was also interesting to note that happy people, or basically mainly happy people, or pretty happy people, are the ones who entered the lifestyle, not people who were miserable with their lives or with their relationships. As for jealousy, only 5% of men and 8% of women agree with the statement, I have difficulty controlling my jealousy while swinging. Hmm. Amanda S. Rysonsky, and again Marissa A. Harrison of the School of Behavioral Sciences and Education at the University of Pennsylvania, were curious about swingers' self-esteem. Their sample consisted of 41 participants, 19 men and 22 women, identifying as swingers and attending a swinging event. Their study attempted to examine the self-esteem of individuals involved in a consensually non-monogamous relationship, the swinging lifestyle. For them, swinging was one type of consensually non-monogamous relationship. Utilizing the Rosenberg self-esteem scale, the self-esteem of swingers was quantified and compared to a sample of the general public. The results reveal that swingers have higher self-esteem. However, gender differences emerged in post hoc analyses, whereby men who engage in swinging have higher self-esteem than the general population, whereas women who engage in swinging have self-esteem comparable to women members of the general public, neither higher nor lower. In the Journal of Sex, in the Journal of Sex Research, Joan K. Dixon was interested in female bisexuality among swingers. Her sample consisted of 50 women who meet the following criteria. At the time of her first sexual contact with another female, each participant needed to be A. married, be at least 30 years of age, be engaged in swinging, be enjoying sex with males, and had no history prior to age 30 of a sexual attraction to females. Subjects typically revealed a high incidence of early and continuing autosexual and heterosexual activity and current high frequencies of sexual activity with both sexes. Influences facilitating a typical subject's initial and subsequent sexual activity with females were found to be her husband, other swingers, and the general swinging environment the husband's influence usually being of paramount importance. It was concluded that those influences, perhaps together with a predisposition toward gaining perceived fulfillment of felt needs through sexual activity, will result in some heterosexual females engaging in multi-female sexual activity and eventually adopting a self-identified bisexual orientation. To conclude, I'm assuming, perhaps incorrectly, that one or two of my listeners may wish to get a glimpse of what goes on at a swingers gathering. 
That glimpse being through the eyes of PhD-holding academics, needless to say. Such a researcher, whom we have already referenced, is Catherine Frank of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. In an article which she co-wrote with J. Tomas Haryanan, Hankin School of Economics, Helsinki, Finland, and which was published in the journal Games and Culture, she and her co-author observed that lifestyle group sex is a phenomenon on the border between games and adult play. Through an analysis of the rules and social contracts arising in group sex, they demonstrate how participants learn to read interactions at group sex events in the same way that players learn game systems and what they can do to become good players in similar situations of people learning games that do not involve sex. In swinging, participants engage in recreational sex with outside players while remaining heterosexual coupled or married and usually emotionally monogamous. Across cultural context, committed partners who engage in swinging or attend group sex events often claim to do so to strengthen their dyadic bond as well as to preemptively fight the potential boredom and the resulting decrease in libido caused by habituation. At group sex events, sexual encounters may be, quote, full swap, unquote, involving couples in intercourse with another partner or partners, or, quote, soft swap, unquote, where touching, oral sex, girl-girl play, or other activities short of intercourse occur. The ongoing fluid negotiations between potential partners preserve excitement and a sense of spontaneity and fantasy. In many North American swinger communities, women are often expected to behave bisexually, while men play exclusively with women. The common requirement that couples play together, that is, forming a foursome with another couple or a group of couples, means that occasionally the attraction for outside partners is unequal. The phrase, taking one for the team, is used in the United States by both men and women to indicate that one consented to sex without a high level of personal desire so that the group could play. An ideal orgiast, in the sense of having all the desired qualities, can indeed be determined. Such an ideal orgiast is empathetic, discreet, considerate, adaptive, playful, attractive, coupled, usually, and sexually skilled. Catherine Frank, the same Catherine Frank, wrote a chapter entitled Play Couples in Paradise, Terse Sexuality and Lifestyle Travel, which was published in the book Love and Globalization, Transformations of Intimacy in the Contemporary World. In this article, she notes the difference between the attitudes of polyamorists and swingers, to whom she refers as lifestylers. Polyamorists, she writes, are often critical of both the focus on emotional monogamy observed by lifestylers and of the casual sex or conspicuous consumption engaged in at swingers' conventions. Lifestylers, Catherine Frank emphasizes, are not practicing what has been referred to in the past as open marriage. That is, each partner is not necessarily pursuing outside relationships on his or her own. Lifestylers usually court and carry out their sexual encounters as a couple, and the lifestyle conventions provide them with an opportunity to do just that. Many couples actually cultivate certain kinds of erotic experiences together, 
selecting partners and scenarios based on fantasies they co-create. Fantasies and sexuality, a topic for a future episode here on Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Another topic that we're going to explore, just to give a little teaser, is what I call the cult of the cute, which is endemic on television. It's like a virus. It's horrible. Where people tend to act, in fact, almost invariably act in an adolescent, even pre-adolescent manner, as if every conversation has to have an aura of cuteness. And this is intercut, spliced in with people being very dramatically serious and tragic in their behavior. You know, very serious. You have the seriousness on the one hand that we're supposed to take very seriously, and then you have the silliness on the other hand, as if this is what life consists of, or as if silliness is the solution cuteness is the solution to our problems. We'll talk about that in a future episode. One of the most interesting things we have discussed in the course of this particular episode, by the way, has been the notion of emo-diversity, having a wide range of emotions, a wide range of affective states, a wide range of sensory states. We've been talking about that throughout the series, and today we visit it again. Here are three statements which I have chosen to end today's exploration of polyamory broadly defined. Quote, Not only are our reasons for doing things incoherent, but we don't know what those reasons are. And we are fundamentally alienated from them. We are alienated from our reasons for doing things which we don't know. Jacques Lacan. Seminar 5, Formations of the Unconscious. Again from Lacan, what it's all about really is within reach, or at least within the psychoanalyst's reach, as he bears witness to that fact when he talks about something serious and not about his therapeutic results. What is within reach is the fact that sexuality makes a whole in truth. And finally, from Max Ferberbuch's film, Amy and Jaguar. Flirting is always serious. It's love, which sometimes looks funny.
I would like to take a moment to say something about the person who inspired this podcast and to highly recommend the books she's written and also her professional services. Her name is Anita DeFrancesco. She is a psychotherapist. She is a very experienced and professional relationship counselor. She has two wonderful podcasts, It's Your Voice! Exclamation point, and that continues on with a new podcast called Discover Joyous Love, on which I have also been a guest. It was a wonderful experience, as it always is, communicating with Anita. So check out her podcast. Her books are extraordinary. One is called Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, the best book title I could possibly think of, a classic title for a book, in which she really takes you through things you can do to make major changes in elevating your self-love, self-esteem, happiness, and even to help you sexually to find a greater sexual fulfillment and vitality. And her other book, different but also relevant, is a true crime thriller, The Donna Gentili Story which concerns the brutal murder of her first cousin, Donna Gentili, and her, that is Anita's, personal efforts to identify the killer. Two great books available on Amazon, or check out Anita's own website, tantrawisdom.com. You can find her there, and also on her Facebook pages, which are Love and Relationship Coach, and also her business page, Tantra Wisdom. Thanks for checking her out. You won't be disappointed.